0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on the Ukraine war and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, two weeks after Hamas terrorists killed more than 1,400 Israelis, wounded thousands more, and took more than 200 hostages, fears remain that the conflict will widen and that Israel has not fully defined realistic goals At the end of its campaign, despite President Biden's unprecedented show of support for Israel, Washington continues to urge Jerusalem to delay the ground offensive, to negotiate the release of more hostages, and avoid opening a second front by preemptively attacking Hezbollah. I spoke with America's former ambassador to Israel, Jim Cunningham, at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, where we both participate in the defense program. But before we get started, a word from our sponsor, HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, HII Delivering the Advantage. Here's my conversation with ambassador Cunningham Jim thanks very much uh, for uh, your time as I said at the introduction uh, you uh, were US ambassador uh, to Israel right now an extraordinary time the United States is backing Israel 100% and the president is giving them um, uh, you know proposing another 11 billion dollars in aid on the other hand uh, it looks like there's also pressure from the administration be very careful in your war aims delay let's get as many of these hostages out um, on Friday two hostages American hostages were released with Qatari help. And at the same time, we're putting pressure on the Israelis not to go into the north uh, and start a second front with a preemptive strike on Hezbollah. Give us your sense on how extraordinary this situation is, where the United States is backing its close allies that's been attacked, on the other hand, asking it to throttle back. Well, we've been through this before, actually, in Gaza
1: and in previous experiences, and that's why I think everybody in Israel and in, in Washington is, is so um, sensitive about this now. Now, first of all, they have been striking Gaza, so let's not forget that. They're, they're pulverizing parts of Gaza from the air and ground, but they haven't gone in on the ground yet. Um, they have a very, very difficult equation to figure out. And I've, I think, I'm, obviously I'm not party to the discussions, but I think the discussions are not just about giving time to negotiate for the hostages and to uh, get humanitarian assistance in, although that's important. I think the discussion is what do we do after this happens and that is a we Israel and the United States and some other partner countries too have got to take the time to think through it's okay everybody knows how angry uh, the Israelis are and you know a lot of Americans were killed in this too and we we have a we have a bone to pick here Um, but we learned an important lesson uh, on 9-11 in, in Iraq, which is, it's a lot easier to go in and blow things up than it is to figure out what to do afterwards. And that's the real game, is what is, what is the outcome that produces lasting stability and security for Israel and the region. So when, when we were preparing for the second Gulf War, I was ambassador at the UN. And the idea of an invasion of Iraq was, was very unpopular in the international community, and the administration was trying to reassure people that we knew what we were doing. A very high level representative from the Pentagon came up to brief the Deputy Secretary General and her key political staff on what our plan was for after the, after the invasion and after we'd toppled Saddam Hussein. And she was not a military person by any means when he left, the, I was in that briefing, when he left the room, she turned to me and said, that's your plan? It was incredulous. Right. So taking your time to get it right is I think an important factor in this. And we have a common stake with the Israelis because we will be with them as we have been, even when they make mistakes.
0: Is delaying the right approach um, given there is concern about the hostages? Uh, they're likely in the tunnels. Uh, It is going to be uh, on steroids. Uh, It's arguably going to be the hardest mission to accomplish given how, uh, you know, maybe 30,000 Hamas guys principally, uh, but there are many more sympathizers and people who are going to be willing to die, unfortunately, for this movement, ultimately. And again, from their standpoint, the more casualties, the better. Um, How long of a delay do you think is necessary? Because I think Hamas is going to want to meter this out to delay an invasion as long as they can.
1: Well, again, I'm not terribly concerned about the delay as such. Uh, Hamas has been preparing this for this for a long time. Um, they have probably thought through their options. Uh, they know how the IDF fights in Gaza because they've done it and seen it before. And unfortunately, they know how to take propaganda advantage of things that happen and and things that don't happen that they make up and uh, there's going to be as much conflict in the propaganda realm versus truth as there is on the ground. I don't know at what point one decides we've done all we can and we're going to go in. That will be a fateful decision. Um, But at some point, I think we and the Israelis will come to that decision or the Israelis will come to that decision. It may not be a joint decision with us. Uh, they've, They've got their own... Um, interests here, of course. Um, but as I said earlier, the, the important thing is not whether we're delaying or not. The important, thing, the important thing is not whether there is a delay or not. The important thing is what use are we making
0: of that time? Um, let me go to the northern uh, border. Yoav Gallant has reported. The Israel Defense, uh, Israel's Defense Minister, is one of those voices who wants a proactive strike. Uh, there is a sense: Hey, look, let's do this before Iran sets the conditions on which it attacks us. Um, is it a, you know, whereas some in Washington are saying, Hey, look, the Gaza campaign itself is going to be a very complicated thing. Again, let's get the hostages out. From your standpoint, is it a smart idea to delay anything in the north, uh, or is it better to do a proactive strike? I can take out Hamas, uh, excuse me, Hezbollah, which is Iran's proxy along with Hamas in the region?
1: Yeah, so I haven't seen Minister Gallant's statement, uh, and I don't mean... It is is reported that that's his uh, standpoint. Um, And I don't want to sound disparaging, but oftentimes the military people want to act. That's what they're trained to do. And they're trained to minimize risk to their own forces and to the success of their own mission. Uh, and that, by the way, is what the American military argued in Iraq as well. I was one of the people who said, well, I actually believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. But as this discussion was going on, I, I kept asking, you know, what's the hurry? Um, they're there or they're not there. And yes, I agreed that we needed to, to get a hold of them. But we, I didn't feel that we had run the diplomatic course yet. And that's the same thing I think that people will be looking at. However, this turns out um, eventually over time. I don't th- first, and I also don't think you can take out Hezbollah. I mean, Hezbollah is is a l- larger fighting force, more dispersed, uh, with a long history of preparation of its own for a conflict with Israel. The Israelis are very well prepared to deal with them. I, I know from my time there. I, received extensive briefings on their assessment of things in southern Lebanon and what they plan to do about it if they had to. Um, that, that's a very difficult decision, but it's, it's certainly not a case of trading off. We're
0: going to sit here and wait, or we're going to take out Hezbollah. That's not the way it's going to work. As you mentioned, Israel's bombing campaign has been very aggressive to try to take out Hamas targets. There was the hospital incident, but now the international community is backing the Israeli position that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket that went uh, awry. At the same time, Israelis are saying, look, even if it's at a hospital, we will bomb a legitimate Hamas target and you're not going to hide behind civilians. At what point does pressure start mounting on Israel to really dial back because each time it's done that, whether it was in Beirut in 2006 or whether it was in 2014 in Gaza, the pressure mounts to the point where Israel does step back even if it says this is a totally different paradigm this time.
1: And it, it happened in 2009 when I was ambassador in Israel. Um, and it will happen again, it, it already is happening actually, you can, you can already see voices in various quarters not just in the Islamic world. Uh, but you can also see voices in various quarters raising the charges of war crimes and collective punishment and that sort of thing, and that's that's inevitable. It's going to happen. Uh, the Israelis have been through this before. I spent many, many hours with the ira- Israeli defense officials and with their attorney general uh, going over various um, charges of war crimes that had been leveled against against the IDF, and I believe that they make a good-faith effort to do the best they can to avoid innocent civilian casualties. That said, there there may come a time when there's a judgment made that that's, that's not possible to do. Uh, there's also the fact that they're also messaging Hamas when they're saying stuff like this. I mean, they're, they're warning Hamas that they won't have sanctuary and trying to dissuade them from using their
0: own people as human shields. Um, last uh, question. How long does this take and does this end without some form of two-state solution ultimately, um, given that we are in part here because that outcome has been delayed for so long, for whatever reasons, whether it's cynicism or machinations on both sides?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, this is why people like me, I mean, nobody foresaw this exact thing happening. But this is why people like me were arguing a decade ago that there was, for, in, for the long term security and stability of Israel and the region, there wasn't any alternative to a two state solution. Um, a lot of Israelis don't believe that. Um, more of them don't believe it now than did 10 years ago. And the, the Palestinian Authority, a putative negotiating par- partner, is a wreck. Um, but fundamentally, I still believe that. The, the, that premise is true um, I, don't see, I don't see any way to provide lasting stability the Israelis have already said they're not going to reoccupy Gaza they don't intend to do that um, I heard Ehud Barak on radio today trying to st- st- stumble his way through what a political solution would be that would be s- stable I don't think he got very far I don't think anybody knows um, I don't think
0: we will know for some time that's one of the great tragedies here And uh, very briefly, how long does this take? Ehud Barak has said it would take about six weeks. Your view is it's going to take a lot longer. I think it will take a lot longer. It certainly certainly will, will not be the case,
1: even if the Israelis are successful in massively taking out Hamas leadership and infrastructure in, let's say, six weeks, there is not yet any concept that I've seen for rapidly transitioning from that condition to something that's a political solution not a peace settlement or anything like that but just a a political solution provides stability and there are ideas floating around having having the arab league or other people take this over temporarily having the palestinian authority take it over having the un have a role i don't think anybody's going to want to have this tar baby in the near
0: future jim thanks so very much honor and pleasure as always thank you And a reminder for the audience that Ambassador Cunningham joined us on the program on September 19, 2023 uh, for one of our deep strategy conversations. It was a terrific discussion, and I recommend that you check it. Out. Quick word from our sponsors Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, including our strategy series, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analysis. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military, as well as unmanned systems worldwide. Uh, he is also an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and is also uh, associated with uh, the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, so it's great to see that the Bendet Empire continues to grow by the day. Sam, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, so since last we uh, spoke, uh, confirmation that the Biden administration uh, a little while ago actually transferred uh, ATACMS missiles, the Army Tactical Missile uh, System, which is one of the world's most accurate uh, and capable battlefield uh, munitions. And apparently the Ukrainians have been using it to great effect. Talk to us about how the Ukrainians uh, are using the weapon and give us a sense of the effect that they're making on the
2: battlefield well one of the biggest issues in this war has been how far can each site strike the adversary's positions how far from the contact line and how far beyond the line of uh essentially beyond the line of combat can they reach and so there was always concern actually not just for the russians but also the ukrainians that uh either force can reach far behind this contact line and actually strike at the key military positions key supply chains and uh and obviously military airports and military bases and that's exactly what happened recently with ukraine using attackums to hit a russian base and apparently destroying a very large number of helicopters and other aircraft and supporting technology so this is really the key right now with ukraine having this capability how many russian military assets are going to be in the crosshairs how far can ukraine reach and what does russia have to do to prevent its forces its supplies its weapons and systems from being the target of such missiles of course this capability extends ukrainian reach deep inside the russian military space and may actually impact logistics supply chains and russian military conduct
0: let me let me take you to the rest of the crimea campaign how much progress are the ukrainians uh, making on that front uh, before we get to avdivka
2: Well, what's interesting is that uh, Ukrainians have been striking deep inside Crimea for many, many months. They've been using a lot of uh, UAVs, they've been using missile strikes. In fact, uh, months ago, Russia's governor of Crimea said that UAVs remain the single most dangerous threat to the peninsula and its military and civilian life and installations. Now, New York Times has published a very interesting article about Ukrainian special forces raids deep inside Crimea. Uh, The question is, to what extent are all these attacks and strikes impacting uh, Russian prosecution of the war? To what extent are actually impacting military forces? in the Crimea to what extent they can rattle the military and the civilian population. So I think all of these cumulative efforts by Ukrainians that have um, really quickened um, their pace over the past several months are in fact having an effect. It's difficult though to see uh, whether or not it may actually impact how Russia fights in the south, how it fights um, elsewhere. But the fact that Ukraine can reach into Russian territory, first with missiles, then with special forces, certainly with UAVs, as it continues to do on a daily basis, is indicative of the fact that Ukrainian defense capacity is still holding and that the Russians can't break the Ukrainian will and the Ukrainian ability to actually strike them on their own turf. Um, uh, Give us
0: uh, an update uh, on the battle uh, around Ativka. Uh, Obviously, a very important Russian uh, counteroffensive and fighting has been incredibly bitter there. Um, You discussed it a little bit last week. What's changed in the last week?
2: Well, uh, we are trying to figure out exactly um, who is um, having an upper hand in Avdivka. Both sides are claiming uh, victories. Both sides are claiming significant losses by the adversary. Certainly, Russians have tried to uh, encircle Ukrainian forces there. Uh, They haven't done so, and they've lost a very large number of troops, materiel, weapons, and systems. And, of course, Ukrainians have also suffered casualties as well. Russia needs a victory. It kind of had a victory of sorts when it took most of Bakhmut at an extremely high cost and it needs another one. And so if it encircles uh, Ukrainians in Avdivka, it will kind of harken back to the Russian victories of 2014 and 2015 over Ukrainian military as the Ukrainians try to restore the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Lugansk under its control. Uh, so Russia needs this for both moral, psychological, of course, military reasons, but it's not having a lot of effect. Uh, the battle is also drawing a very large number of uh, different types of weapons and systems um, by both sides. Both sides, for example, are using a lot of uh, UAVs and different types of drones for uh, these type of um, operations. But again, Russians haven't been able to encircle the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian defense is holding firm.
0: Uh, And I would uh, tell the audience to tune into our tech report uh, on Wednesday when Veronica Mudra of uh, Alter Ego is going to join us to talk a little bit about the UAV capabilities, uh, this California company uh, that is owned and run by uh, Ukrainian American women. Uh, are uh, delivering. Um, You know, speaking about UAVs, uh, Russia has been, you know, you've helped us understand the kind of capabilities the Russians have been uh, developing, as well as Ukrainians are fielding. Uh, There are now increased reports that some of the capabilities the Russians have been fielding are really taking a toll on Ukrainian forces, and that's coming from Ukrainians themselves. What are the Russian capabilities that are proving so problematic?
2: It's been about a year and a half uh, since Russia started fielding a number of different types of UAVs and drones against Ukrainians. And today, Ukrainian military is publicly recognizing that Russia's Landsat loading munition is having a significant and detrimental effect on the Ukrainian forces, as well as Russia's Orlan 10 and Orlan 30 ISR UAVs that have a range between 100 kilometers for Orlan 10 and up to 300 kilometers for Orlan 30, as well as Zala. ISR, ISR drone, which uh, usually acts in partnership with Landsat, uh, basically Zala scouts the positions and provides overwatch and Landsat strikes Ukrainian weapons, as well as SuperCam and several other ISR drones. What this means is that Russians have developed and maintained the production and fielding of several key military drones. In other words, Ukraine has a lot of drones right now. It has dozens of companies providing and supplying Ukrainian forces with different capabilities. But um, as the Ukrainians themselves have recognized in multiple articles and analyses in the Western media, it's a mishmash of different types of uh, capabilities. And Ukraine does not have the equivalent of, for example, Landsat loading munition or Orlan-10 drone, which can be manufactured in large quantities by the defense industrial enterprises, making these drones impervious to some of the countermeasures which are applied by the Ukrainians. So the fact that Ukrainians are recognizing that these drones are having an effect is, uh, essentially a testament to Russian military sort of long-term strategy in developing right. and manufacturing their UAVs. In other words, they're staking their claim on several, uh, military type drones. And all of these drones, of course, are aided by a very huge number of different, um, commercially available and, uh, volunteer-supplied quadcopters and FPVs, which are also at the front. Of course, Russia also operates Iranian Shahed drones. And although they were uh, in use for over a year, Ukraine has learned to mitigate the threat from the Shaheds. However, Landsets and Orlan Tents and Zalas remain a tactical threat and are recognized by the Ukrainians as such.
0: Um, We've got about a minute and a half, very briefly. How are the Ukrainians countering the Shaheds? Because there is a Shahed factory that's being produced outside Right, I mean, Russia is building a Shahed factory outside Moscow. How are the Ukrainians
2: countering it? Well, uh, Ukrainians are using a number of uh, different types of um, sensor and kinetic systems to um, basically identify Shahed in flight, to track it in flight, and then shoot it down. Uh, Large caliber machine guns, large caliber weapons, um, even small arms can be quite successful against Shaheds. It's, It's relatively brittle UAV when it comes to its construction it's uncomplicated and it's unsophisticated. It's relatively simple. For now, Ukrainians are capable of tracking Shaheds as they fly. They're using a very loud, cheap motor. The problem, of course, will be if and when Russians launch mass-scale production of their uh, russified version of the Shahed, the Giran, which is going to come with a a different motor, with a different types of uh, 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 GPS-type system, as well as other improvements aimed to basically get around the Ukrainian defenses. We're not there yet, but we may be there assuming this factor actually comes online and Russians manufacture as many drones as they think they will.
0: Uh, We have about 30 seconds uh, left. President Biden is asking for $61 billion more uh, for Ukraine as part of a $105 billion package that also includes aid uh, to Israel and Taiwan. What are the priority systems for Ukraine uh, that uh, the $61 billion should be devoted to?
2: Well, it's likely uh, that the systems uh, that U.S. government wants to provide are similar to the ones it's already supplying uh, different types of missiles, uh, as well as different types of, uh, for example, electronic warfare counter UAV systems, um, as well as others that Ukraine needs at the very tactical level. Um, it's it's This roster can change depending on what the Ukrainians need, but these are the immediate needs that Ukrainians uh, want addressed.
0: Sam, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on next week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Thanks so much, Fargo. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back.
3: Always a pleasure, Fargo.
0: It wouldn't be Monday uh, without it. Thanks so very much for always being so generous with your time. Uh, God, so much to talk about uh, and so little time. Let's start where we uh, started last week. Uh, obviously, uh, I think we're 18, 19 days into uh, the House uh, uh, new speaker race. Uh, you had some concerns last week about Jim Jordan becoming a uh, speaker. He has now bowed out after losing a succession of votes. Um, what's on your mind about the candidates who might be speaker the issues at play and what does this mean for a supplemental right i mean the president's supplemental package he's asking for 105 billion dollars 61 of which for ukraine about 11 of which for israel and the rest for taiwan border and other uh, Well, well
3: there's a there's a chunk of money in there for the submarine industrial base which is pretty intriguing too but look it it's just a mess i don't know how else to describe it i don't think that Um, Whoever, you know, ends up winning this race, you know, they're probably still going to be limping along, particularly if the same rules hold. So, you know, the risk for the U.S. defense budget is the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And if we see that go through and the FY24 budget is cut to 99% of FY23, this is what I wrote about in my Sunday night note. You know, just looking at the at, at what happened between FY12 and FY16 when DOD basically had to change plans because of the Budget Control Act, <laughs> military personnel was more or less intact. O&M was more or less intact. The data is a little wonky because you have to factor in uh, overseas contingency operations, which I didn't have the fidelity to pull it out. But the biggest cuts fell on the investment accounts and so i think you'd see the same thing happen you know unless congress is able to amend the fiscal responsibility act and avoid those cuts but th- there's nothing that gives me a great deal of confidence that we're going to avoid that scenario um i suppose you know the question is what's going to happen in fy25 too but we'll cross that bridge next year um I don't know, you know, what's going to get passed by Congress on this supplemental package. I mean, I thought the president made a pretty good case for it. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about it before. And I think that the simple fact is, you know, particularly as these older stocks are drawn down to supply Ukraine, you're going to be talking about newer equipment that's going to be more expensive. So, of course, the bill is going to go up. And the other thing is Ukraine has to have um the 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 financial you know it's not just about the military kit we're sending them to there's a good slug of money in there for their economy and for human humanitarian aid too so it's a pretty i think you know comprehensive package but i just don't have a strong sense today you know what congress is actually going to do with that i'm I'm sure you know it could pass the senate um Probably not by a large margin, but by a respectable margin. But the house is still—it's still just an open question mark there, particularly without a speaker. So, um, or someone authorized, you know, at least to move right. this particular piece of legislation.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to uh, Lockheed uh, Martin's uh, earnings. That's always the tip of the iceberg. Uh, interesting that only one company has reported, but a whole bunch are going to be reporting over the next two weeks. Uh, what did those earnings tell you about what we should expect from the rest of the group? I know Ron uh, and Richard discussed that a little bit on uh, yesterday's show, but want to get your take.
3: Yeah, in my own view, I don't think there was anything that should have surprised people there. You know, naturally, you know, just as I said, there's uncertainty around the FY24 budget. Um, there's still some issues with, with a classified program that they've got. Um, but I didn't see anything that I thought was particularly, you know, should should cause people to rethink what the rest of these companies are going to reporting. And then of course, on Friday afternoon, you know, right around the close of, of markets, the, the outlay data came out for September, you know, and that was respectable. I think um, the investment accounts uh, for the calendar Quarter that ended in September, were up around 7%. OM was up about 8%. So, you know, there's not a high correlation between those percent changes, but they definitely move in the same direction. And and that alone, I think, should give people some comfort about um the this next uh slew of earnings reports that come out this week and next for the US defense contractors.
0: Let me take you uh to Israel's war on Hamas uh last uh, week. Uh, Israel vowed uh, that it would sever any relationship with uh, with uh, Hamas or with Gaza. Uh, it was going to destroy Hamas, but sever all uh, ties uh, with uh, Gaza. Uh, and news reporting uh, on you know the back and forth between the administration and Israelis, uh, you know, working with Qataris to free uh, two hostages uh, at the time of this uh, recording. What are some thoughts on this as we go through the process?
3: I'm a little surprised, Vago that the IDF hasn't launched their ground operation yet. Uh, I, I don't think that this is something that time is necessarily on on, on the Israeli side. Uh, you do want to get this over as quickly as possible. I do think it, you know, a lot of people commented on this. It's going to be a very tough fight, you know, um, I don't know how the IDF is highly trained. But how well trained they are in the type of environment they're going to be fighting in in Gaza City is an open question. Uh, particularly right. when you get, uh, you know, what could be a couple of hundred miles of tunnels that are also going to be a factor in the in this campaign. And for Hamas, this is this is going to be like ISIS in Mosul or Raqqa. I mean, it's going to be a it's going to be an existential fight to the finish for them. And so, you know, the, the sooner that this gets underway. You know, you don't want to give Hamas even more time uh, to prepare their defenses, and um, maybe may, you know, Israeli air power can certainly wear them down. But there, there's always going to be that chance that there's the inadvertent, you know, mass civil casualty. As much as I think the IDF is trying to avoid those, um, right. you know, the, the the fog of war can create them, and that can only bring more pressure on Israel to postpone a campaign here so i was a little surprised at that the um you know there's enough a lot of ammunition is in part of the supplemental request again this was a letter that was sent that we don't have the full details yet on this but um you know the use of 155 millimeter ammunition in an urban environment you know i would have thought this is going to be you're going to try and limit the use of of air right. to just the extent possible
0: um, let me. Um, I want to go to the week ahead, but uh, go back uh, because I uh, should have promptly followed up uh, on the submarine industrial base language. I think everybody has a tendency of focusing on the on the war specific part of it. Talk to us a little bit about this industrial base investment because it's absolutely critical in delivering uh, submarines faster and naval capabilities faster.
3: Well, it is Vago, and I think I think it's just people kind of. know that gets lost in the sauce with with looking at you know what this total package was but there is there's 3.2 billion dollars in uh funding it's it's onm money it's procurement money there's military construction money for the us submarine industrial base it's spread over a couple of years but i think really it's going to start to get to some of the concerns about can the u.s industrial base deliver on the navy's need but also on the needs of the australian navy in AUKUS? and um you know again i don't know exactly how this is going to play out uh with what the house ultimately does with this there is a a house armed services hearing uh this week with officials from the navy that i'm sure are going to air some of this out and why the funding is needed but um you know it does contribute to the broader there there's a lot of money frankly for um uh it's foreign military financing but for indo pacific region israel and ukraine and i keep an eye on that too cuz that that helps uh with us defense exports but we'll see we'll see uh,
0: and give us uh really quick we've got about 45 seconds uh give us uh what are the things the audience ought to be paying attention to over the course of the week
3: I think I've lost track of the number of events uh, that (laughs) have been built on the the war in the Middle East. Um, I will be at a, uh, a Capital Markets Day that Kinetic is holding in New York City on Wednesday. Obviously, as we discussed, there are a bunch of defense contractors speaking. I mentioned the House Armed Services Committee hearing on the submarine industrial base um there's a CSIS event on uh on transatlantic defense cooperation and um I know I've missed a couple others Vago, but
0: and uh, on Wednesday is the annual Comdef conference yes. Uh, yes. Uh, which uh, I could never people, people to Com-Deaf, check out
3: yes and unfortunately I won't be there because of the Kinetic, uh, the Kinetic Investor Day but yeah I think the interesting thing there will be Bill LaPlan is going to be speaking and Bill Bill usually is quite open uh, particularly right. in like Comdef so um, sorry, I can't be there, but I'll have to watch the uh, the news flows from that event.
0: I'm happy to give uh, give you coverage uh, on it, Byron. Thanks so very much. It's always a pleasure having you on uh, the program. Uh, have a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.
3: You too, Vaga. Thank you.